I enjoy reading, but I'm going to admit something to you that I probably ought not to admit to you. I really, really struggle reading fiction. And the reason I struggle reading fiction is because my brain, in order to operate at all, needs to run in a straight line. And it is a world-class struggle to get it to run in a straight line most of the time. And in a novel, I mean, you've got this going on and this going on and this going on and this going on, and you don't know really, at least I don't know, how are those things ever going to connect. And I just, I get completely, completely lost in the plot. And I recognize that not reading fiction is for me and uh, you know an, a, a deficiency intellectually. I need to get better at reading fiction. So I thought, what better book to start with than Lord of the Rings, which uh, frankly is a boat anchor. I mean, it is huge, and there's a bazillion things going on at, at once. And um, I've been reading it. I'm now on my fourth year. I kid you not. And I am very hopeful that. Uh, by the time I turn 60 in five years or so, I'll be done. So another five years, I ought to have it whipped. But there is a piece of it that uh, has stood out to me up to this point. It's, as a matter of fact, it's, it's probably one of the parts of the book that people, even who aren't associated with it, uh, recognize, even though they might not know it comes from the Lord of the Rings. It's called the Riddle of the Strider. Now, striders were people's who were viewed as outsiders, and because they were viewed as outsiders, they were viewed as being mysterious, they were viewed as being um, worthy of suspicion, and, and even outright feared. And Frodo the Hobbit comes across one of these striders named Aragorn, we find out later, who is not one of uh, these kinds of people that you should with suspicion and fear. In fact, he's actually the king. And as he reflects on the idea that this one is, is, has more to him than, than what one would think, he begins to write this riddle. And you, you've heard this. It's all that is gold does not glitter, and all who wonder are not lost. There's more to this person than meets the eye. He is the king. Now, Peter, if you've been with us in our study of the book of 1 Peter, has been laboring to drive home the point that our faith in Jesus Christ makes us exiles in the world. It makes us no longer belong. It makes us no longer apart. And because of that, as people, as followers of Jesus in our world, we can begin to be viewed mysteriously or with suspicion or with outright fear and disdain. And Peter has been saying, you know, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have this kind of experience. But he's also alert to the fact that you don't need to think that, that you don't belong. Being in exile mean, doesn't mean that you don't belong somewhere. You, you need to keep in mind who you really, really are. And so when he gets to our section of 1 Peter today, alert to the fact that people need to be encouraged, that there's more to you than what the world can see. There's more to you than meets the eye. He begins to drive home three points for exiles that are meant to encourage them. So if you would please find 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And we're going to look at this section that unpacks three truths meant to encourage every single person here today who is a follower of Jesus. And the first of these truths meant to encourage is this. Exiles 
are not aimless. Exiles are not aimless. Let's look at how he starts. He says, as you come to him. Now, the him is a reference to Jesus. And he says that in a way that communicates the idea as you continually come to Jesus. And he's talking about salvation. And that means that how he's talking about salvation here is different than how we tend to think of salvation. Most of us tend to think of coming to Christ in salvation as a past event. So, for instance, I gave my life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord on March the 26th, 1978, First Baptist Church, Tahlequah, Oklahoma. So, that is when I came to Christ, but that's not what he's saying here. He's speaking of coming to Christ on a continual basis. Let's keep reading. As you come to him, and then he describes Christ, as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's going to complete the thought, but let's stop right there. As you continually come to Jesus, who is, he says, not cold and dead. He is not uh, a, a static set of doctrines that we are meant to embrace intellectually. He is a living, dynamic presence. So he says, as you as a Christian, as an exile in this world, continually come to Christ as a living and dynamic presence. He says you yourselves like living stones. He says you become a living stone yourself. You begin to draw life from the living stone. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now he goes on to say to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's just hold that. He's going to come back to that at the end of this section. But let's right now think of what he is saying here. He's saying as we, as Jesus followers, don't leave our faith in Jesus as some kind of moment in our past, but as we continually come to Jesus, a living stone, as we root our identity into him, as we are, are people who are framed by our very existence by Jesus Christ, as we continually come to him, we are built up as living stones, as a spiritual house. Now, from Peter's frame of reference, a spiritual house, because he was a, a person who came to faith in Jesus from the Jewish religion, a spiritual house would have called to mind for him the temple. Now, the temple for the Jews was more than just where they went to worship God. The temple for the Jews represented the very habitation of God on planet Earth. This is where God sat. The mercy seat on the Holy of Holies was God's earthly throne. The temple was the habitation of God. So when he is talking here about the spiritual house being built up, he's saying you, as you continually come to Christ and are built up in him, you become the habitation of God on earth. If I were to ask you, what is the aim of the Christian life? It might be a while before someone would say the aim of the Christian life is to become like Jesus. Becoming like Jesus 
should be the measurement of the progress we are making or not making in our walk with Jesus. The fundamental question for a follower of Jesus should be, am I becoming more and more like Jesus? Is my life becoming the habitation of Christ on earth? Is my life becoming the means, the vehicle by which Jesus Christ lives out his life in 2021 Johnson County, America? Our journey in faith is to become more like Jesus. Well, where did Peter get this idea? Jesus? Here's what he says, John 15, 5. I am the vine, Jesus says. I am the source of life. I am the living source of life. You are the branches. You are living in me. You are drawing your, your life from me. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, whoever continually comes to me, maintains a continuing connection with me, he says, anyone who does that bears much fruit. Meaning what? Bears the life of the vine in their own life. Jesus, in his very words, says that the aim of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus. That's our journey. That is what we are aiming for, to become more like Jesus. But here's the thing. The vast majority of those around us have no appreciation for that journey. I mean, as they, as they hear you talk about, you know, my goal in life, doesn't matter how much money I make, doesn't matter what kind of job I have, doesn't matter what kind of status I have, my goal in life, not to go to heaven when I die, but my goal in life is to become more like Jesus, to reflect the life of Jesus to those around me, will be viewed as naive and sweet at best if not greeted with outright hostility. Karl Marx famously said this about Christianity. The social principles of Christianity preach cowardice, self-contempt, abasement, submissiveness, and humbleness. In short... All the qualities of rabble. What a worthless pursuit, he says, to become like Jesus. So if you were to say, my goal in life is to become like Jesus, the response from your neighbors, from your classmates, from your friends, might not be as mean-spirited and outright demonic as what Karl Marx responded there, but it may be just as dismissed. Because... This pursuit of Christ-likeness is not appreciated by this world. And so they easily look over us. They easily dismiss us. They easily see no gold that glitters. They easily see people who are on a naive, lost little journey through life. But Peter says, don't you embrace that idea. Don't you give in to that kind of thinking. Not all who wonder are lost. Not all that is gold glitters. You are something more. You are on a pursuit to become like Jesus. So that's the first truth he wants us to hang on to and remember to encourage us. And the second one flows from us, from this. Exiles are not aimless and exiles, his next point, are not disgraced. Exiles are not disgraced. Then he begins to bring that out 
in the next verses. Let's walk through them. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture. Now, when he says for, this is important. This can help you in your Bible reading. Anytime you see that word for, it means that what follows is the ground, is the foundation, is the root for what he has just said. So when he has talked about we are being built up as a spiritual house, as a, as, a, as a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, as we, are, as we are becoming more like Jesus. The reason I can say that is that Scripture says this, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, he's quoting the Old Testament, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's saying, Jesus is the cornerstone of the house that he is building that you are a part of. Now, cornerstones in modern life are largely ceremonial. I, I would imagine maybe I could walk around the building and I would find something of a cornerstone. I don't know that I could. We've got a plaque out uh, in the foyer on the way out. It might serve as a cornerstone, but they're largely ceremonial. They don't really have any kind of controlling um, influence on on construction but in ancient days that were, was not the case the first stone in any building project was the cornerstone and it was massive it typically was the most massive of the stones that was laid but what was more important about it was not its massiveness but its dimensions did it run true were the were the lines straight did it run true and the reason that it had to run true is that if that one stone didn't have the proper perfect dimensions the entire project would be thrown off there's a a fun story years ago about 20 years ago when this particular part of the campus uh, was being built they had plumbed back at this corner wrong they had they had the wrong uh, dimensions they shot wrong and as they carried it out, they discovered that right back there in that back corner, y'all would be sitting about five or six feet off the ground, all right? It wasn't going to work. And so they, they, they were off back here because they were off at their starting point. What Peter is saying here is that you have a life that is running true and straight because of Jesus. And because of Jesus your life's going to move in the direction he has for it, which means it's going to fulfill divine purpose, and there's nothing shameful in that. He says, reversing things, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, saying what? Those who have rejected Jesus as the cornerstone, as the key to life, are the ones who are ultimately going to be put to shame. So let's pull back from it here. He's, he's speaking to people who have been ostracized for their faith, who have believed and have spoken to others about their bedrock conviction that Jesus Christ had rose, uh, risen from the dead, that he had been crucified, which was an offense, and that that took on that sacrifice, took on the, the, the sin of the world and, and he was buried and, and that was an offense and that he rose again. What? That's all crazy talk. You ought to be ashamed of yourself for believing something like that. He's saying you ought not to be ashamed of yourself at all. You have embraced that 
which is ultimately true. They are the ones worthy of shame who have rejected it. And why have they rejected it? It says they stumble because they disobey the word. Meaning what? Very simple. He's already told us. Go back to verse 25 of chapter 1. That the word is the good news that was preached to you. These who have rejected Jesus have rejected the gospel message that you embraced. They are trying to say that you are worthy of shame. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, you're disgraced. But just the opposite is true. So again, speaking to exiles, people whose faith in Jesus Christ had made them outsiders in the world, who maybe had started to believe that all of the bad things said to them were true. Peter is saying, don't forget, you're not aimless. You're becoming the very habitation of the life of Jesus in this world. That's the reason that, that you've been saved. This is the trajectory that you're on to become like Christ. You're not disgraced. You have embraced that which ultimately is going to give life its perfect meaning. Those who reject it are the ones who are worthy of shame. But then he reaches the crescendo of what he's saying here when he gets to this next truth. Exiles are not aimless. Exiles are not disgraced. Exiles are not insignificant. They're not insignificant. I want you to see how he just kind of erupts as he has built himself up into a lather thinking about who we really are. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, here's how he's, he's going here. He, he is really just building one thing on top of the other to make certain that his readers get who they are. He is saying, you're not just special, a holy nation. You are not just really special, a royal priesthood. You're not just really, really special, a holy nation. You are really, really, really special. You are the very people of God, a people for his own possession. He's driving home the point. If you ever think that you're insignificant in this world and that you are worthless in this world, never forget that you are the very possession of God. You belong to him. And this would have resonated in the in the ears of Peter's original readers here in ways that may be lost on us. Racial tension has always been dogging the church, and it dogged it from the very beginning. The people who came to faith in Jesus Christ came to faith in Jesus Christ from the Jewish religion. They were ethnic Jews. They had come to believe that the Jewish scriptures pointed to Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, as the Jewish Messiah. And most Jews had forgotten that a function of the Jewish Messiah was to redeem all of the world and make the entire world his kingdom. And so when Gentiles, non-Jews, began to come to faith, they had a problem with it. Because they had always been taught that Gentiles were to be viewed as an abomination, not just for their worship practices, but ultimately for who they were. They are not Jews. And there was this, this tension in the church, a racial tension in the church, when the Jewish Christians 
at best would accept the Gentile Christians as second-class citizens. And Peter is writing to Gentile Christians. And he's saying to them, what makes you the people of God, what makes you the chosen nation, is not your ethnic DNA connection to Abraham. What makes you God's own possession, what makes you a holy nation, is the olive skin and the red blood of Jesus Christ. This is what gives you your significance and your worth. And so these people who had always been taught by the the Jewish religion that you're less than and that you're second class and you're unworthy of the mercy of God have received the mercy of God. They have hope in God. They would have rejoiced. They would have exulted in the truth that I am the possession of God. I am not insignificant. And I'm not going to let anybody tell me I'm insignificant, not even those in the church, which we do. Maybe, hopefully, not because of race, but because of background. Someone who's a known sinner walks into some churches, not welcome. You know, I know you may be struggling with your sexual identity, but you're not welcome to hear the claims of Christ here. I know that uh, you, you may be really trying to get Jesus to put your life together after completely jacking up your marriage, but, you know, we're always going to hold that against you. Second-class citizens. But if we come to Jesus, it doesn't matter what sin we have come to Jesus from. If we repent of that sin and place our hope in Jesus, we have a significance that is beyond description. We as exiles, are not insignificant. And Christians have spent far too much time in my adult life crying, woe is me, victimization. Buying into the narrative that, you know, if we don't fight for ourselves, nobody's going to fight for us. Buying into the narrative that that we really are second-class citizens in the world. And what Peter is saying to his readers here, don't believe that for a second. You have infinite worth. You have infinite value. You have infinite purpose because of Jesus Christ. You are not aimless. You are not disgraced. You are not insignificant. You are God's people. All right? So what do we do with that? How do we, knowing what we know, knowing about the worth that we have because of Jesus, how do we put that into play in our life? Peter's actually already told us. And to kind of get to the heart of it, I want to read to you um, the earliest historical record of Christianity. It comes from the Roman general Tacitus. And he is recording in his annals kind of a historical account of the burning of Rome. Nero, the emperor at that time, sought to pin the blame for the burning of Rome on Christians. And here's what Tacitus writes. He said, Nero fastened the guilt 
and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, he's referring to Jesus, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty. He was executed. The extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, which is what we read in Scripture. And a most mischievous superstition, listen to that, a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. That's the first non-Christian historical record of Christianity. And Tacitus called it the product of a mischievous superstition and an evil. So what was the mischievous superstition? The belief, the message that Jesus Christ had risen from the grave. That was the mischievous superstition. And this was the message that was on the lips of Christians anywhere they landed. All right, so let's go back to our text. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you are yourselves like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When you're doing your own Bible reading, the question you ought to ask there, if you slow down long enough and, and aren't just checking something to do it that day, you should slow down and you should ask yourself, what are the spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ? And you ought to alert yourself to saying, okay, I need to pay attention for an answer that Peter might give. And he gives it in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why have you been left here? Why have I been left here? I've been left here to tell everyone that I come in contact with that Jesus is alive to continue to spread the mischievous superstition, the evil in the eyes of the world, that a Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago died and paid the penalty of my sin and rose again as a triumphant proclamation that God had accepted his sacrifice. That's why you're here. That's why we are all still here so let me say to us for like the millionth time you don't have neighbors because they live next to you you have neighbors because Jesus placed you there to tell them that Jesus is alive you don't have co-workers because they work in the same office as you you have co-workers because Jesus placed you there to tell them that Jesus is alive. You have classmates not because they took the same class that you took. You have classmates because Jesus has placed you there to tell your classmates that Jesus 
is alive. He has not put you there to say, come to Blue Valley Baptist Church. He has not put you there to teach them why a biblical understanding of human sexuality is essential for human flourishing. He's put you there to tell people of all stripes, from all backgrounds, a kaleidoscope of sinners, that Jesus is alive. Because he's the cornerstone that causes life to run straight and true. And if you don't start with Jesus, it doesn't matter what kind of argument that you make about your morality to someone else. The best you can hope for is to make them a hell-bound legalist. Unless the cornerstone that we lay in the lives of people is the cornerstone of Jesus. This is why you're here. This is why I'm here. This is why Blue Valley Baptist Church is here. To tell people that Jesus is alive. So don't ever buy into any kind of thinking that your lot in life is hopeless, that your place in this world is meaningless. You are the very possession of God. You are the gold that doesn't glitter in the eyes of the world. You are the ones who know where they are going and everyone else is lost. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.